We started a, a brief Christmas series um, that's going to take us through the first couple of chapters in Luke's gospel. And so this morning, I'm going to read, um, and we're going to talk about Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. So if you want, you can go ahead and turn there, and, um, and I'm going to read it, and you can follow along. If you want to use one of the Bibles in the pews, it is on page 856. Um, just before I read, just a little context, um, just in case maybe you weren't here, here last week or you don't know what comes before this, but Mary, a young virgin from Nazareth, she was visited by this angel Gabriel who told her that she would give birth to God's own son, Jesus. And she, in this meeting with Gabriel, she was also told that her aged relative Elizabeth, who had been barren her whole life, um, was also with child, uh, John the Baptist. And so today's story is about Mary who goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. So let's, let me read this passage for us in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's go before Him just briefly to ask for His help as we look at this passage. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for being a God who is not silent but has spoken to Uh, His people through His Word. And Father, we pray that as we open up Your Word this morning, we would indeed hear not the voice of a preacher, but ultimately we would hear the voice of the Creator of the universe and the voice of the One who sent His own Son into the world in order that we might have life through Him. So, Father, would you wake us up with your voice? Would you heal us with your voice? Would you even call the dead to life this morning through the power of your voice? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want us to try to think think about something important as we begin this morning, and, and it's this. Common to our human experience is a deep sense of loss. We all feel it. Um, we all carry, just by the mere fact of being human beings, we carry around with us this sense that something essential to our humanity is missing. And it may be difficult for us to articulate at times, and there may be other times in which we try to compensate for it. Or there may, may be times where we seek to numb ourselves to the experience and the feeling of it or try to avoid it altogether. But this deep sense of loss, it's really common to our humanity. Um, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a preacher I love to read his sermons, um, he was a preacher in London in the early to mid-1900s. And in this one sermon on Genesis, uh, he argued uh, that all of humanity goes through life with a memory trace, is what he says. Uh, listen to what he said in one place. He said, we are all conscious of a sense, a memory, a recollection of having lost something. We are ever trying to recapture something that we know we once possessed. There is a deep restlessness within humanity, this restlessness that comes from knowing that we're made for something bigger. We're made for something greater. Um, But we feel it. We feel like something essential to our humanity is missing. Uh, we know we were meant to experience deep joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and wholeness, but it constantly seems to elude us all, all the time as we're chasing it. Listen again to what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, we have an innate feeling that we were meant for something bigger and higher. There is in every one of us a recollection, a memory of what we once were. And though we have lost this, and though we have never known it, a memory lingers. So my question is, what is this lingering memory, this memory trace, this recollection that in all our chasing and in all our grasping seems to constantly elude us and slip through our fingers? Stay with me here just for a couple of minutes. Why would quarterback Tom Brady, um, who has won five Super Bowls, tell Steve Croft on 60 Minutes, why do I still think there's something greater out there for me? There's got to be more than this. Why would tennis great Chris Everett say that at the height of her success, that she found herself crying two to three times a day uncontrollably, and that she was, quote, depressed and afraid at the height of her career and success, and that she felt completely lost. Why would the famous pop singer Moby say at the height of his success that he had never been in his life more despondent and miserable and just wanted to kill himself? Why would actor Jim Carrey, in a recent documentary uh, on Netflix, if you want to find it, say that he felt absolute confusion, absolute disappointment, and unhappiness right when he experienced the fruition of all his dreams? What is this deep and haunting memory, really, that this something essential to our humanity uh, that we're chasing, even, and even after we've achieved everything we thought would bring us happiness, it still haunts us. W- what is this memory? Lloyd-Jones, again, last time for Lloyd-Jones this morning, um, he said, it's that we were made on such a scale that nothing but a deep, intimate, personal relationship with God Himself could ever fully satisfy us. No amount of Super Bowl rings or popularity or wealth or fame, and no, since most of us don't have Super Bowl rings or, or any of the, the success that some of these other people I've mentioned, no amount of romantic relationship, 
No success in your career, no amount of popularity, no amount of respect from your peers or control or power in life will ever be enough to make you feel whole and complete and satisfied. We try to compensate for this, or we try to numb ourselves to it, or we try to avoid it, but this memory lingers within us all that we were made to be before God's face, that we were made to be in deep personal relationship with Him, and we were made to sense His overwhelming delight in us and to experience deep and abiding joy and blessing in Him. So this little story in Luke chapter 1, I want to suggest, it actually is telling us how to find ultimate joy and how to find the blessing we were made for. Um, And it does this by telling us two things, the source of our joy and the way to blessing. And those are our two points, the source of joy and the way to blessing. So first, the source of joy. Mary traveled to see her relative Elizabeth, who was already six months pregnant uh, with John the Baptist. And we're told in verse 41 that upon Elizabeth hearing Mary's voice, that the baby inside of her, in her womb, leaped. And then Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, she explained in verse 44 that the child in her womb, John, leaped for what? Leaped for joy. Right? And Elizabeth herself said something fascinating in verse 43 that I love. She said, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You know, that's amazing on a lot of different levels that she would say that. Most scholars think that Mary at this point, Elizabeth is pregnant six months, but Mary is pregnant maybe for a week at this point. Not showing, the baby in her womb was just an embryo. But Elizabeth recognized that that embryo was her Lord. It's mind-boggling, mind-blowing. Mary was pregnant with a child. She would give birth for the first time to someone who was older than she was, right? Someone who had existed before time itself began. It's mind-boggling. But for our purposes today, I I really do want to focus on, on John Because it's when he comes before God's face, even in the form of an embryo, the God-man Jesus, that he leaps for joy. Because listen, the source of joy this passage is telling you is a person. The source of joy is this God-man Jesus. You cannot in this life find real and ultimate joy unless you come before his face unless you get before His face. Deep within us, we know this, that we were, made, we were meant for joy. And you know it because you spend your whole life chasing it. I spend my whole life chasing it. But how do we tend to pursue and chase joy in our lives? Not before God's face. Let's be honest. We chase it in our circumstances, don't we? We're giving chase, and though we don't say it out loud because we know better, we think, if I could just get this, or if I could just get that, then I would be happy. Then my life would be complete and whole. If only this would change in my life, then I would be complete. 
If I could just have this or that, then I'd have enough joy to be able to handle all the smaller disappointments in my life. If I could just get the recognition I think I deserve. If I could just get that promotion I know is due me. If I could just afford to live in that neighborhood. If I could just have my kids behave me every once in a while in public. If I could have a spouse that would better meet my real needs that I have, then it would be enough to give me joy. There is this fascinating feast that God commanded his people to celebrate in the Old Testament, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe you've heard of it before. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 23, but do that later. I'm going to tell you about it in brief right here. It was a fascinating feast and celebration because it was the feast that came at the end of harvest, right? So an agrarian people, they gathered in all their crops and they put them in the storehouse. And when God had provided this bountiful harvest for them, right, when he had increased his people's wealth materially, when he had increased their positions, possessions significantly, and now that their hard work was over, it was time to celebrate. And so God gave them this feast of the tabernacles, but here's, what, here's why that particular feast commemorating the end of harvest was fascinating. Here's what God told them to do. He told them to go out into the wilderness and build booths and live in them for seven days. Now, these booths um, might be better translated as lean-to shacks, right? You think about what God was telling them to do. It's celebration time. The harvest is in. We're fat. We're wealthy. We're happy. Look at all the stuff we have. Our storehouses are full. And God said, I want you to go celebrate by forsaking all of your worldly comforts, your wealth and your goods, and I want you to live in the most primitive conditions possible. And what were they supposed to do for those seven days? What was the point of it? Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, God told them, go out and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Why would God do that? Because he was saying, you will never find the joy you are meant for, that you are made for in your circumstances. You can only find the deep, abiding, and ultimate joy that you were meant to have before the face of God. He is the source of joy. And as an infant still in his mother's womb, John John leaped for joy the moment he came before God's face in Jesus. The source of joy is a person, Jesus. I've overused this illustration. Um, Sorry about that, Um, but just deal with it. Uh, I love the imagery, right? And you've probably seen something like this before if you haven't heard this on the National Geographic Channel or the Discovery Channel. And what I'm talking about is uh, time-lapse photography, right? When a camera is focused, let's say, on a flower for a 24-hour period of time. Because you can't see this stuff with the naked eye, right? It needs to be sped up for you to see what's actually happening in nature uh, for this flower over the course of a 24-hour period. But time-lapse photography, it allows you to see that, how the flower droops and it actually closes its petals during the night, right? But when the sun comes up, how it opens its petals to the sun. And you watch this and see how that flower traces the face of the sun over the arc of the sky, right? 
all throughout the day, constantly turning to be able to face the sun, always facing the sun. Why? Because that is the source of life. And listen, we were made for what theologians call the visio day or the beatific vision, the vision of God, the, the vision of ultimate beauty. You are made to face God in all His beauty. He is the source of joy you are made for, but you know you've lost. To know this joy, you have to come before a person. That's Jesus. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in the next point, but let me hit one piece of application here because I do know that many of you in this very room you are facing some hard and difficult things in life right now. And for a number of us, just this time of year might be incredibly difficult. Um, let, let me remind you of just a couple of passages uh, in the Bible. James, the author James wrote this, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Right? Paul told the Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings. Peter wrote that we are to rejoice that we participate in the sufferings of Christ. The biblical writers, what they're talking about is they're talking about a joy that is so deep and so profound that it cannot ever be touched by the circumstances of your life, whether those circumstances are good or bad. A joy that's completely independent of what's happening in your life, in the circumstances. See, when, we, when you and I try to get joy out of our circumstances, we're always trying to control our circumstances so that we can make them favorable for us. It's why we get angry or, or maybe depressed when something gets in the way of us having what we think we, we need to have in order to be happy. And it's why we get anxious and afraid when something that we thought we had to have in order to be happy, is threatened in our lives. But the Bible is saying, this is what the Bible is saying throughout, if you are facing God, and if He is the source of your joy, it's not just that joy is maintained in the midst of your suffering. The Bible's going much further than that. It's saying it actually grows in the midst of unfavorable circumstances in your life. Because that's when you realize he is everything you need. You are made for Him. You are made on that kind of scale, like Lloyd-Jones says, to possess an untouchable joy, to delight in His delighting in you. All right, second, let's talk about the way to blessing. The word blessing is used in this passage three different times, uh, twice in verse 42 and once in verse 45. And, and the word blessing, it's, an important, it's a very important biblical term and concept, but for most of us, the word itself is just completely watered down uh, because it's overused. And it's wrongly used many times to talk about kind of a subjective feeling that we might have. Uh, but in the Bible, blessing is always an objective statement. It's a pronouncement. And you can see that in this story. That's exactly how Elizabeth uses it every time she uses it. Blessed is she. Blessed is the child. Blessed is she, right? It, 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 it's pronouncing an objective condition. And much of this word's background, it comes from the Old Testament. Um, see, it meant 
to be brought back into, to be brought back to where you were meant to be all along. It meant to be restored to wholeness. It's this whole idea of the Hebrew word shalom, if you're familiar with that word. It's to find deep rest and fulfillment and satisfaction that comes from knowing you're enough and you're complete and whole. So, listen, what does this story in Luke 1 teach us about the way to blessing? Let's start by talking about how we tend to pursue and chase this blessing in our lives. Put plainly, we pursue it and we chase it through achieving. Author David Brooks, I like to read him from time to time, he writes this about Americans. We live in a world of almost crystalline meritocracy. Starting at birth, middle-class Americans are called on to master skills, do well in school, practice sports, excel in extracurricular activities, get into college, build their resumes, change careers, be good in bed, set up retirement plans, and so on. We live in a meritocracy where you prove you're enough through achieving. And that's right. That's the world we live in, isn't it? I mean, we're all operating on the basis of a meritocracy, that the way to blessing is through achieving. Let me just give you a few examples um, so you see how, how much you're swimming in this. You know, applying for acceptance to college or, or maybe uh, getting hired to do a job, filling out your resume to get a job. How did you go about deciding about what to put on your resume or what to put on your applications? I, I would wager a pretty significant amount that you did not list all of your failures, flaws, and lack of qualifications in order to do the job or to excel in in school, right? You didn't do that because life is a meritocracy, and you know it. And so you listed all those achievements you thought would prove your worth or your acceptability. What about relationally? I mean, romantic relationships even. Um, my wife isn't here in here this morning, but I can tell you this. The only way I got her to marry me was by doing an incredibly good job during dating of hiding all my flaws and weaknesses and trying to prove to her that I would be a good catch, right? And, and deceive her in that. That's what all dating is. It's a matter, it's deception. And of course she did the same thing to me, right? Um, of course we, we dated like that. Of course we did. Because life is a meritocracy. But let me ask this question. What is the impact of living a life trying to prove you're enough, trying to prove you're whole and complete through all of your achieving? I used this quote from Brene Brown last week, but it fits again here. She wrote that the human experience is one of hustling for our worthiness. By constantly performing, perfecting, pleasing, and proving. And I love that word, hustling. We're hustling in life for a verdict. We're hustling for a pronouncement that we're okay, that we're lovable, that we're acceptable, that we're worthy, right? We're hustling for it. We're trying to achieve it. And the impact of all of that is that we we are just thinking exhausted, We are worn out. We're neurotic. We're anxious. We're deeply insecure. But but what other options do we have? Because life is a meritocracy, right? 
Elizabeth said something incredibly fascinating to Mary under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 45. She said that Mary didn't get this objective pronouncement by achieving, but through believing. Verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment. She believed, is what Luke is saying, and everything in that load of word, loaded word of blessing was hers the moment she believed. Through believing, she came back into the relationship she was always meant to have with God, real, deep, personal, intimate relationship. Through believing, she came back under the smile and delight of God. Simply through believing, she found assurance that she was enough, that she was acceptable, that she had true worth. But how is that possible? I mean, doesn't… Doesn't that sound too good to be true? I mean, if you're honest, it does. I I really hope this next part makes sense to you because I want it to be clear so that you can connect the dots back to your life, but I don't know. So we're going to just try it. Um, Over and over, I have had versions of this conversation with my kids, countless versions of this. right, my kids come home from school and their, their feelings are hurt. Um, and they're upset. Maybe somebody said something hurtful to them or somebody was mean to them uh, in the cafeteria or something like that. Or sometimes it happens before the fact, right? Before anything has happened, and they tell me that they're scared that so-and-so is going to do something or say something, and they're scared that somebody's going to make fun of them, and then they're going to be embarrassed. And so I tell them, I'm really, really sorry about the hurt feelings, but God loves you, and that's enough, <laughs> right? Where I tell them, don't be afraid of being embarrassed because God loves you, and that should be enough to set you free. And almost 10 times out of 10, they roll their eyes at me, <laughs> and they just stare back at me blankly, right? The same blank stare or rolling of the eyes I might get from you if I said, it's okay you were passed over for that promotion. Um, It's okay that your spouse embarrassed you in front of your friends. It's okay that the company is disappointed in all your failures um, because God loves you and that's enough. And, And my kids don't talk like this and neither do we. But here's what we're really saying in our blank stares and our rolling of the eyes. We're saying, that's great, but real life is a meritocracy. (laughs) That's wonderful news. But here in the real world, blessing comes through achieving. And you know what? The Bible couldn't agree with you more. It really couldn't. How is it that Mary found the way to blessing through believing? Let me ask it to you this way. Why does the Gospel of Luke still have 23 chapters to go? I mean, why does Luke need to tell us in chapter 2 that Jesus was taken to the temple according to the law of Moses when he was a baby in order to fulfill the law? Why do we need to be told in chapter 2 that when Jesus' parents lost him, he was in the temple? Of course he was. He was in his father's house. Why do we need to be told in chapter 4 about how Jesus obeyed God perfectly and, tempt, and was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness, but never failed to obey his father? 
Why do we need to be told all these stories about Jesus loving and healing the broken and the blind and the dying? Why do we need to be told all these stories about him feeding thousands of hungry people? Why do we need to be told about how Jesus was ridiculed and rejected by the religious establishment, but never faltered once in his obedience to the Father, even when it led to his death? The answer is pretty simple. Life is a meritocracy. And Jesus didn't just come to die for you. He also came to live for you the life you could not live. And to live it perfectly before His Father. And merit for you life forever. Everything necessary for achieving a verdict, a pronouncement of approval, of perfect merit, of perfect wholeness. He did, and He did it for you. And He did it in your place. So that for you and me, the way to blessing really does come through believing. And only through believing. Through trusting what He has achieved for us. And when you believe that, that's when you find the deep rest and the deep satisfaction that you long for, that you know you were made for. Because when the verdict is already in, everything you needed to know that you're enough, everything you needed to know that you are loved and accepted and approved of, it has been accomplished for you in Jesus. And listen, our blank stares, our rolling of the eyes, you know what that reveals? It reveals how hard it is to get belief like that from our heads down into our hearts. All right, so let me give you just three quick applications about helping us get that belief from our heads down into our hearts. First, you need community. Listen, Mary, upon hearing the good news about bearing God's own son, as soon as she heard it, she went to find someone else. She went to find Elizabeth to talk with someone who would understand, to talk to someone who could confirm this good news. We need community to process the good news of the gospel, to work it from our heads down into our hearts. You have to have people involved in your life. You have to be involved in their lives. See, Mary does not sing her beautiful Magnificat until she's processed it, the good news herself, in community. Listen, if you haven't been there yet, um, you will be one day. I'm just going to tell you, there will be a day when this good news, it seems too good to be true, at least for you and where it's hard to believe for you. And you will need others in your life to believe it for you when you can't believe it and to push you back into the arms of Jesus, to bring you back before God's face, the source of joy and blessing. We need one another. Second, you need to look through your circumstances to Jesus. And here's what I mean. C.S. Lewis, he wrote about how before he became a Christian, he used to love reading great books, and he used to love listening to great music and all that kind of stuff. And he, he said that before he was a Christian, he would get obsessed with these things, and he would just binge on book, good books and bi- literature and binge on great music and all that kind of stuff. And then he wrote that when he became a Christian, he realized what he had been doing. He, he said he was looking for joy. But he had mistakenly thought that the joy was in the books or in the music. 
And he wrote that he finally realized that the joy was coming from God through the books and through the music and through the food and through the friendships and through all kinds of things. Enjoy the good gifts of God, but you have to learn to look through the gifts to the giver of the gifts because only God Himself is the ultimate untouchable, uncorruptible, unfading source of joy. And then third and last, fix your eyes upon Jesus. The source of joy and blessing is a person, Jesus. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. What was the joy set before the one who owns a cattle on a th- the cattle on a thousand hills? What was the joy set before him who had everything and was the ruler of all things? It was you. You were the reason. He came to achieve God's blessing for you and to take on himself the cursed death of the cross. Fix your eyes upon Jesus and learn what it is to delight in his delighting in you because you were made for that. You are made on that scale, and nothing else could or ever will satisfy you and give you the joy you long for in this life. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the good news of the gospel that Jesus came and he lived the life we could not live, and He died death we should have died, in order that just through believing, we might have real ultimate joy and real ultimate blessing. Father, we thank You for this good news, and we pray that You would give us a community that would help us to press in ever more deeply into the goodness of Your grace. We pray that You would allow us to look through the circumstances of our lives and to see Your hand that gives Your children nothing but good. And we pray that You would help us, help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus and teach us what it means to delight in your delighting in us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.